Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, I'm Alexander Folladay and I'm an Anglican priest presently studying law and working as a journalist in Budapest. And with me is Dr Anna Rowlands, the St Hilda Associate Professor of Catholic Social Thought and Practice in the University of Durham. Anna, thank you very much for joining me at the end of a long day of discussion with Hungarian theologians and pastors. Uh, we are uh, having this conversation in Eastern Europe um, in October 2019, approaching the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I wondered um, if you have any particular memories from 1989. Um, well, thank you, first of all, for inviting me to be part of the conversation. 1989 was a really significant year for me. I went to um, a state school um, in uh, just outside Manchester in Stockport, and I had an extremely unusual history teacher. She was young, she was from an Irish background herself, but she had this great interest in Eastern Europe. So instead of being sent on school exchanges to sort of lovely Mediterranean locations, we were um, uh, sent on trips to Eastern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe. So in 1989, we ended up going on a school trip um, and we went to Berlin. And in fact, we arrived just after the very initial fall of the, the wall. It was um, sort of a few weeks after that. Um, that's my memory of it. And we arrived into a Berlin that was just beginning to experience that euphoria um, a reunification. So we were at Checkpoint Charlie, we had the opportunity to be at the wall and in fact the day that we had arrived was the first day when they were removing a full section of the wall rather than the chipping away at it. So the images from that time you'll remember were of people dancing on top of the wall and chipping bits out. So we were there the day when they removed the first section of the wall and that made an enormous impact on me. I think really it was my political awakening really. So on the one hand, it was kind of, you know, the end of Thatcher's Britain and the rise of, you know, of something else, uh, the beginning of that in the UK. But for me, the thing that really alerted me to what was going to be the task of my generation was something that was beyond communism. It was also the kind of faltering at the end of the 1980s of a model of hypercapitalism. And my political awakening really happened, I suppose, in the decline of two great political movements um, and the wondering about what would come to be in that place and our history teacher I think had extraordinary imagination um, in placing us in that context the following year in fact we came here to Budapest um, and we had the opportunity to experience life in a Hungary that was just emerging into that post-communist world. Did you manage to get a bit of the wall for yourself? I have got my own oh, bit of the wall yeah indeed <laughs> I have got my own bit of the wall yeah which I got myself with my own hands it wasn't just purchased off a street seller there were many street sellers selling their bits of the wall but I do indeed from that day uh, being there when they removed the first section I have my own bit of the Berlin Wall. You've done some work in a post-communist context um, through through work with uh, the church in Poland and with academics in Poland uh, how would you say that the experience, the memory, the legacy of the Cold War makes Catholicism in Eastern Europe different uh, somehow or at all from that of Catholicism in France or Britain or America. I mean, I, I think myself that religion and Catholicism included within that is always in, 
interaction with its material conditions, with the conditions of the culture uh, in which it finds itself. And so I think it should be, that, you know, I don't think there's anything exceptional about that fact in an Eastern European context mm. compared to our own context mm. or, or the US. And I'm very aware that a certain kind of intellectual battle uh, ground was, was, you know, fought in, say, France in the, you know, 17, 1800s, so the Catholicism of, of France was this struggle to refine what faith might mean in an age of revolution and post-revolution. In a sense, that, that kind of struggle between faith and culture, not in opposition to, but, but that kind of space of contestation moves both across the Atlantic into the culture wars of Catholicism in the US, but it also moves east mm. in terms of the need to find a new settlement mm. for a culture emerging from communism into a post-communist period. Um, and I'm very interested in that attempt to forge and find an identity for Catholicism. Um, I think on the one hand that means the reawakening of um, strong devotional practices, and uh, the renewal of a certain kind of liturgical um, life and, and a seriousness about all of that. But I also think that there is a, a, a tie across between forms of nationalism and Catholicism um, happening, actually I think in quite different ways in say Poland and Hungary at the moment. Mm. I think that there's a kind of uh, a feed through between say the politics of, um, of the Law and Justice Party in Poland um, and a sort of Catholic imaginary, a sort of Catholic mm. imagination, which weaves a, a very interesting social welfare mm. platform that does seem to bear some affinity to Catholic social teaching and its emphasis on redistribution mm. um, and certain forms of social solidarity, but marries that with a social conservatism. So it produces, th partly through the influence, and indeed some would say the co-option of Catholicism into national life, a very interesting post-left-right as well as post-communist form of politics. Um, and that, that really is quite distinctive. Mm. And, you know, the, I think the challenge is to... How, how do you get a culture which is suffused by faith, um, in which there is genuine um, freedom and liberty for faith, but in which faith remains itself vibrant and not co-opted by the political in ways that it becomes simply another form of power? So I think every culture, political culture, faces a particular set of temptations. That's not exceptional in Eastern Europe. In the UK, we have our own set mm. of temptations around how we relate um, religion and the political. But I think that temptation to a form of, of national church is, is there. In Hungary, I see that in, in ways that are quite different. I mean, we may go on to talk about that, yeah. but it's a different settlement, I think. Um, just to just unpack something... Um, do you think that the experience of the of the Cold War made, for instance, the reception of Vatican II and its reforms more difficult in Eastern Europe? I I just reminded of a, a nun friend of mine here who said that it, you know it didn't really begin until much later in terms of kind of processing the conciliar documents and and mindset. I wonder if you come across anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you know the the church in Eastern Europe was obviously largely an underground church. Um, I think the kind of theology that resonates with you when you're in a period of persecution... Um, it's the certainties, or it, it's, it's, No, I, don't, I think it's not just the certainties, actually. I think that um, the register of transcendence, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. rather than simply imminence, becomes oh. really important. Um, so the things that, that connect you with 
anotherness um, beyond what's happening to you and give you a horizon um, of freedom. I think those things are, are really important. So I think that, that, that horizon of transcendence is, is, is really important. And I also think that often, and this isn't just true for the Christian tradition, it's true for the Jewish tradition as well, that um, there's a shift towards the mystical mm -hmm. during periods of intense um, crisis and suffering. So maybe it's that what resonates for us within the register of the theological is really quite profoundly affected by what we're living through. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I would worry about simply saying it's a, it's a reaching for certainties. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a, a register of, of what allows one a sense of survival, of liberation, um, of otherness. Um, and that, that provides you a different space to exist in. Mm, thank you. You said a, a moment ago you thought that the um, present sort of Christian nationalist shift was was different in, in sort of post-communist Poland and post-communist Hungary. I, I wondered if you could perhaps just uh, elaborate on that just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think being here in, in Budapest this week, one of the things that's really struck me, it puzzles me, <laughs> as well as strikes me, is that this is a country with a very large Catholic population, but also with other religious traditions who have a very significant foothold here as well. Especially presence, the Reformed Churches. Especially the Reformed Churches. Um, and that means that there's a sense in which there's a kind of Reformed set of practices. Um, and Victor Orban is himself Victor, on the Reformed exactly, tradition. Exactly. So Orban himself is this really interesting mix of reformed influences, and I think this structure of a, a church, uh, sorry, a state rather, that um, has significant financial control mm -hmm. over the church, and in a sense, I mean, the more cynical way perhaps of putting it would be, can you can use money as a form of control? Um, I'm a political theologian, so I'm <laughs> interested in how capital flows and is used as a form of power, and I think that read at least one way, yes. we can say that money is used um, as a form of power in relation to the Hungarian churches. And certainly I have been with church leaders this week who have precisely that experience of money being used as a form of, um, of, of power over, mm. um, uh, over them. So I think that there's this sense that somehow there is uh, the power of the nation state itself and the church derives its legitimacy from the nation state rather than it having an inherent freedom um, or simply a different kind of jurisdiction. Um, and yet, on the other hand, you know, big Catholic population, and Orban is very drawn to the register of Catholicism, both the theatre, the, the, the drama, the liturgy, the tradition. You know, I, I mean, I remember Alex, you saying to me that you know the the figure of the archangel Michael is mm. you know kind of a Which you is know, his the entrance yes. way to, to his mm. new offices and that sense of this epic cosmic battle between mm. good and evil that's that's played out and I suspect in some ways the register of um, family friendly policies so called um, in relation to Catholic social teaching etc I think Orban plays up to that and I think that there's a degree of Catholic support for the social conservatism behind his agenda I think that's undoubted there are those who would say well actually Orban's a kind of mixed figure and mm. um, you know we sort of have to be clear that there are some things that that you know register in a certain way with a with a Catholic imagination. I have other reasons myself for being quite sceptical of that 
that matching and, and really quite quite deep concerns um, about the language of Christian liberty that he's currently adopting for his platform um, and the way in which that is really very, very problematic. But I do think that both Orban himself, the way he uses theology, it's a mix of ideas from Reformed and Catholic traditions that are being incorporated together. And his is quite a deliberate construction. Unlike other populist leaders, he's a, he's a, he sees himself as a kind of philosopher king. Yeah. And so this is a deliberate crafting. This isn't just the church um, providing the basis for a kind of Christian nationalism for him. Orban, you know, admittedly, no doubt with advisors and people in the background, but, but Orban himself is attempting to craft an intellectual vision as a leader with, you know, he would say not populist, but a people's party, uh, whatever level, whatever label one gives to it, is a very deliberate project of crafting um, a kind of political theology as a secular leader. And that, at the very least, has to be of great interest to us. And I think it's quite different from what law and justice are doing in Poland. I, I, I would agree. And um, the intellectual sophistication with which it's expressed, I sometimes worry, takes in... Um, eminent, uh, a few eminent and, and respectable conservative Christian intellectuals in both uh, the US and, and the UK in the way that I think left-wing intellectuals during the Cold War were quite, often quite vulnerable to being co-opted by, um, by Marxist or, 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 or uh, Warsaw Pact governments. Um, oh, right sure. Right. And yeah. I mean, I, I'm thinking of Hannah Arendt's rather scathing line that, you know, in the end, uh, it, it, it's the badge of honour the middle class intellectuals give to these movements that's the truly unforgivable thing. What you do for bread or potatoes is quite different from what you do because you choose to, to be taken in by it intellectually. Um, when to some extent you have the freedom um, to choose to be taken in by that intellectually. So the co-option of the intelligentsia, uh, so-called, is, is, is always a, a really serious thing for a society. Yes, uh, I, I mean, we're, we're, we're called to holy foolishness, but not to useful idiocy. Yeah. Um, I mean, perhaps the one other thing to say, I think, on mm -hmm. some of the conversations I've had um, mm -hmm. in, in different contexts in Eastern Europe, um, with Ukrainian mm -hmm. colleagues and, and, um, and Polish colleagues and others, is, is really about the extent to which there was a functional civil society, um, those the thick intermediary associations that post-communism um, could effectively start to work to be the grounds for free thinking, for resistance, for building something that wasn't the state and wasn't the market and wasn't just the church, although the church would be part of that. And certainly um, visiting homelessness projects here in Budapest this week really interesting observations about what happened in 1989 to those who'd been dependent on the communist state for um, for shelter, who'd worked in factories. Um, and between 1989 and 1993, I was being told yesterday, you know, really, people survived off pure altruism. Yes. That there weren't thick civic structures, they had to be born again um, until social mm -hmm. um, provision um, from the state was put in place and a, and a thicker civic associationism was was developed. The economy went into, into sort of a kind of toxic shock yeah. and, and the social consequences were relentless. Yeah. And if you deprive civil society of its oxygen for long enough, that has real consequences for a society. And I think um, you know, that's one of the legacies in a post-communist context is um, the kind of absence of that longevity of, of civic associationalism. What gives you hope from what you've seen? Well, many things do. One, um, I've met extraordinary people, particularly connected with the religious orders. And again, what interests me in terms of structures for resistance within the churches is that I think religious orders for me are the place 
where I see deep hope because they have alternative structures, they have a kind of cosmopolitan internationalism in the way they're trained and in the exchange of ideas, and I think it gives the strength mm. to resist some of the co-option um, and also to offer really risky social um, service to a community, the willingness in, in Poland to shelter migrants and, and refugees um, when there was much preaching from pulpits to suggest that that was somehow a kind of cooperation with an infidel um, you know, really brave acts by people, religious orders, um, but also, um, uh, you know, a generation who had memories themselves of refugeedom and a younger generation who really um, want something very different um, for their future. So I see hope in some of the extraordinary bravery, I think, of religious orders in trying to find little, um, little oxygen pockets uh, where they can operate from in a younger generation and in the risks um, that some are willing to take with an extraordinary sense of calling to, to live something different. I, I would agree very much. Um, I, I think um, monks and nuns are in, in, innately countercultural, um, and that you know, makes it the more willing in some ways to stand out from the crowd. Um, and illustratively, you know, during the, the And it gives you some protection it, as it well. It does as well. The, the protection yeah. of a religious order makes it possible to live differently. Yeah, and, and here in 2015, when parish clergy were ordered not to help the refugees transiting through the country en route to Germany, um, the religious orders uh, opened yeah. the gates of their, their, their monasteries and convents and yeah. said, come, you know, yeah. let us help you on your journey. Yeah. I, I mean, that's interesting in terms of what it teaches us about um, what makes solidarity and resistance possible, that we, we need to build community mm. um, from which solidarity is then a sustainable thing. Um, sporadic acts of generosity are possible for anybody, mm. um, but the sustaining of those over time in a structural way requires us to build small-scale Christian communities that network with each other, um, and indeed that's kind of what religious orders are. Um, I have barraged you with questions, so now it's your turn to throw anything back from you know, memories of Night in Asia Minor or, or whatever. Well, I mean, yeah. it would be interesting to hear your, your memories of, of 1989, and then perhaps also you know, you're returning to live in a post-communist um, mm. context yourself. Mm. Um, and, you know, where do you see both hope and where do you see the major challenges? Hmm. Um, in terms of my memories of 1989, they're slightly more rudimentary than, than yours. Well, you'd have been younger. I was a bit younger. <laughs> um, but they are nonetheless vivid, and it was the first political thing I remember, but for slightly unusual reasons, um, because... Um, my, you know, my family were Hungarian refugees during the Cold War. My grandparents were very courageous social democrat um, opposition journalists. Uh, my grandfather had spent three years in a political prisoner's camp um, during, during a forced labour sentence and on a starvation diet for, uh, for, for much of that time. The first thing I remember really politically is 1989 and a kind of little cluster of things like seeing my father cry for the first time because his mm. father could go home from exile. Mm. Um, this, you know, the exile that was the foundational and framing factor all of our lives. Mm. Um, and my, I didn't come to Hungary in 89, but my parents did. It was a remarkable time to be here, August 1989, for, for two reasons. Well, um, because things were changing. Changes began in Hungary and Poland earlier than they did in, mm. in Germany. And my grandfather had been able to come home uh, because the, 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 the free elections had been promised and the system was changing. And our family photographs al albums are just full 
the paint of pictures that my dad took of his dad, just doing the most banal day-to-day -day things, like unpacking shopping and answering the telephone, because dad couldn't believe this was happening in Budapest, um, the place where my grandfather's name couldn't appear in print mm. for, for 30 mm. years. And also because the city was full of East German refugees, mm. um, 50,000 of them, mm. in the parks, waiting for their um, passports from the West German embassy after you know, basically the, Hungari the Hungarians and the Austrians were allowing transit through the country. Uh, 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 you know, the transit that undermined the Honecker regime. So, you know, all of that was terribly exciting. Um, uh, I had a terrible argument with my parents in December, age six, in December 1989, because they wouldn't let me watch Ceausescu's execution on television. Um, <laughs> a very unusual child. Um, but Clearly. Because, yes. Um, but, you know, because, you know, the whole family was kind of so focused on what's happening in Eastern Europe, I didn't want to be left out of this thing. Um, I think they made the right decision by not letting me watch it. I hate seeing mm. that. But it, it was kind of framing for me to, in a, in a difficult way. In terms of returning to, to live here, I think that is tied up a lot with partly a personal thing that um, I've always, every time I've got on a plane back to Britain for the last 12 years, I've kind of felt that I was actually not going home, um, that home is here. But there was another thing, which is that over the last nine years, I've um, watched through the establishment of the um, illiberal regime, the slow unpicking, the slow destruction of everything that during the Cold War my grandparents mm. fought and hoped and, and risked their lives for. And I can't do much about it, um, but I can do something about writing about it. In terms of what, what gives me hope, um, I think it's not dissimilar uh, to you, it is the little pockets of, of quiet resistance that one, one comes across, uh, the little countercultural pockets. Not for me quite so much in, in the religious orders in Hungary, though I have, do have friends there, but through things like the, you know, um, the small Hungarian Evangelical Fellowship, which um, mm. uh, despite its deregistration by the state, or its, its persecution by the state, quite mm. frankly, um, has continued to offer help to migrants, to refugees, mm. um, to people with mental health problems, to Roma, mm. um, and to not prioritise its own survival and existence, but to continue no, to give out um, to people who have even less. Yeah. So one of the things that struck me talking to somebody this morning who's basically uh, of a Jewish background, mm. secular, um, is first of all that you know he was commending the Evangelical Fellowship as you know kind of the model. Um, of walking the walk and of a kind of fearless witness that far transcends the borders of, of the Christian community here. But also he talked about what sustained himself. He was doing work with refugees at the border, um, those who were being pushed back, uh, 20,000 in the last two years, um, he estimates. And I asked him what kept him going. And he said, you know, I think that there, there are um, a generation of us for whom this is a is like a calling. Mm. It's like a vocation, like like you yeah. Christians talk about yeah. having a vocation. For us, we feel this as a vocational calling. And the only reason why we're not afraid when we hit up against some of these illiberal limits is because we truly, truly believe that this is this is a calling. Yeah. And and it for us this has the the feel of belief. Yeah. And and you know, listening to him, you know, I I think that's quite extraordinary really to, to take the kind of risks that he's taking on behalf of other people yeah. 
um, and those who at the moment have virtually no um, possibility of securing you know, basic dignified treatment within Hungarian borders. I'm, I'm experiencing starvation tactics and, uh, and so on within the European, in a country within the European yeah. Union. And, and therefore confronting what you have to confront about the nature of your own state. To live in a state that you cannot believe in. You know, so much is said about patriotism and the importance of that, etc. But to live in a state and maintain hope when you cannot believe in that state, you know, that, that's, a, that's a tricky space to be in. Um, thank you very much um, for your, your contribution. No, and, thanks and for the conversation, and, and Alex. For to Not at all. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comments and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast is provided by Sought After Sound. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.